Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 48. Today's episode is a little bit different. I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Catherine of Or Coffee, a specialty coffee roastery and training center in Belgium. This episode is a little bit different because I'm not interviewing her. She's actually interviewing me for her podcast, Pure Coffee. Many of you have been with me since episode one, so you hardly need an interview to get to know me better. However, I want to share this with you because I want you to meet her and I share some things about my background that maybe not all of you know. Or perhaps you're a new listener to the podcast and this episode is kind of like a tidy summary of many of the topics we have discussed over the last 47 episodes. Katrine is a patron of the podcast, so she and I started to converse through Patreon originally. Then she reached out because she wanted to hire me for a consultancy. She was going to Honduras to visit a producer she had been buying coffee from and wanted me to accompany her. As a roaster, she wanted to hire me to consult for a producer. Now, if you guys know me, normally this is not my preferred model. I prefer to be hired directly by the producer that I'm going to be visiting. However, I had several conversations with Katrine and I felt like it could be a good match. She and her husband started their roastery in a town near Brussels in 2001. She has been committed to specialty coffee for over 20 years. The other reason I was eager to accept this job is because she wasn't trying to hire me to create a weird process or to change the way the producer was already making their coffee. She had been a longtime customer and she liked the coffee. The reason she wanted to hire me was because she started noticing some inconsistencies in the lots that they were receiving. And she wasn't getting satisfying answers as to what was going on or how they were going to fix it. Another, less committed buyer might end the relationship or try to find a different coffee. Instead, Katrine wanted me to visit and see if I could figure out how to help this producer improve their consistency so that she could keep buying from them. So in February of this year, I went to Honduras and met her, and we spent a wonderful week together uh, tasting coffees, talking about coffees, and processing coffees together. So we talk a little bit about that time together during this conversation on the podcast. And, you know, another element that made me really excited about this opportunity was instead of just speaking to one producer, they invited their neighbors for the week that I was there, and we had like 15 other producers who came to learn about coffee fermentations. And this kind of in-person collaborative group setting is a great way to learn, and it's also why I'm so excited to be hosting the fermentation camps in Colombia. October is the last month of early bird ticket prices, so if you're thinking about coming to hang out in person in January, uh, don't wait. <laughs> Just <laughs> make your plans. Make your plans now. Uh, information about the camp, including dates, ticket prices, and travel info are linked in the show notes. Hi Lucia, how are you? I'm so happy to have you in this episode. How are you doing back in Colombia at the moment? I'm doing really well in Colombia. Uh, I was mentioning a little bit that we've had an incredibly rainy season. It's been unseasonably um, wet. So I talked to other producers and they say it's like, they felt like it's been three years of winter, just like straight rain. And so in my part of the world, I'm in um, Risaralda. And so we've had a bunch of rain this past uh, couple of weeks, more than usual. And so right now we're currently without water. And I'm saying my husband is out with the neighbors trying to see what they can do to fix it. So it's just the realities of living on a coffee farm, kind of living in one of these very 
uh, vulnerable kind of climate areas where there's just a very a lot of pressure. So I'm very in touch with what producers are feeling right now in, you know, kind of this coffee belt area. Yeah. And what is the season now in the region where you are regarding the coffee season? What what are you in now? So we're supposed to be in summer. And in the tropics, it's, you know, they call it summer and winter, which is really not uh, it's not very accurate because it's really dry and wet seasons, but it's kind of like the, the Latin way to say, you know, summer and winter. So in the summer, it's supposed to be dry and you have these long periods without rain. And then in the winter, it's a very wet season. And in Central and South America, the winter coincides with the harvest. So a lot of the times the harvest is the wettest part of the year. So it's really hard to do things like naturals here. It's really hard to have like, unlike Africa, where you can have longer periods of of dryness. So right now we're, ha we're having trouble these last couple of years because it's wet all the time. So there's not yeah. even, you know, very much of a break, which really affects yields. Um, yields are much lower because the rain will knock the flowers off. There's not as much bloom. And then when it actually comes time to harvest, it's very difficult because it's muddy. There's a lot of erosion. It's difficult to sort of, you know, get it, get into these very, um, very steep terrain, Colombia is very unique in terms of how how steep a lot of the plantings are compared to a lot of other Latin countries that I've worked in. But uh, mm -hmm. sorry, I think I'm getting way ahead of ourselves in terms of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you don't yeah, even know well, who I am. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we will uh, start by, because I, I'm not sure that everybody who is listening to this podcast in Belgium will know Lucia Solis. However, you are very known in the coffee world, but in this podcast, maybe there is people who are wondering who is this lady living in Colombia? So maybe my first question would be, uh, who are you? <laughs> yeah, no, of course. So I want, so my name is Lucia and I'm a coffee processing specialist. So I work with coffee producers and their farms to work mostly on processing with a focus on fermentation, but I do get to talk about drying. I get to talk about, you know, more parts of the process. And, you know, when people ask me how I got into this job or how they could get into this job, because they're very inspired and they find it interesting. It's hard for me to give them good advice because my advice was like, do something else for 10 years and then get into coffee. So what I did was I studied winemaking. So I, even though I was born in Guatemala, my family left in the, late 80s, um, early 90s, because of a lot of civil unrest. And so we emigrated to California. It's a very common story. So I grew up as an American in California. And I was able to go to school there. So I went to UC Davis, and I studied, I loved bio biology and chemistry immediately. Like I, I knew when I was 13 years old, I loved science, and I was going to do it. I had great high school teachers. So I went to college, and I knew I was going to study biochemistry. But it was a very lonely a very lonely degree for a woman to be in a lab by myself. And three years into my degree, I was like, I don't think I can do this for my whole life. Like I was, I had like a, a panic, a crisis of like, how, what am I going to do with the science degree that is less isolating? And because I happened to be at UC Davis, there is a wine program and the wine program, it just allowed me to do chemistry and biology and plant stuff, like all of these things kind of, you know, melded together. And the Napa Valley is really close by. So it was just like the most logical, like move to use my science degree to make wine. It was like, 
it sounds very like fantasy to like be a winemaker. But for me, it was, it was almost like being an accountant. Like I went to school, I studied math and I'm going to be an accountant. It was like the most applied thing that I could do. So in 2006, I did my first harvest in Napa and I just, I fell in love with it. And I was like, this is awesome. This is great. So I graduated with my degree and I started working in Napa making wine. I did that for uh, my nine, nine years. And then after that, I was recruited by a company called Scott Laboratories to do fermentation. So they were looking to start, like enter the coffee industry. So they have their yeast manufacturers and they were able to really corner the market for wine, for beer, uh, in dairy, in baked goods, uh, in all of these other corners. But coffee and cacao were completely untapped markets and no one really knew very much about them. So this was in 2014. And they said, we have all of these yeasts. We know coffee is fermented, but we don't know what that means and what yeast would be best suited for what climates, what varieties. Uh, so we need someone to kind of do, you know, it wasn't research because I'm not a researcher or a scientist. It was more applied research. It was more just like data gathering. So my job in 2014 was to take a whole sample of yeast and go to different coffee farms in Guatemala and El Salvador and Panama and Brazil, all of these different countries and just see what worked and to see which ones gave good results and what were some of the challenges. And then that's how I got into coffee. I didn't drink coffee. I never thought I would be in coffee. I just sort of came in the back door through processing. And that's what I do now. I I really focus on standardizing uh, coffee fermentations and really trying to maximize flavor from, you know, what's usually a very chaotic situation. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're working as an independent consultant. That's right. I left Scott Laboratories in 2016. And Mm -hmm. I I did that because I I learned a lot and I really enjoyed the job that I was doing. But I realized that so many of producers' challenges, like the problem with coffee isn't that producers don't have yeast. Like that's not their biggest challenge. And so by working with Scott Laboratories, I really had to focus on that and push that. But a lot of the times I would go to the mills and I would see, well, their biggest challenge on quality is like their pulpers not calibrated or they don't have enough people or their water quality or, you know, other things like that. And so by becoming independent, it really let me focus on the bigger picture and really helping producers kind of figure out what are the biggest leverage points for them to improve their quality. And it may be fermentation. A lot of the time it is. But it's usually coupled with other things. So there were other steps first that they needed to take before they eventually could go into that yeast thing. Exactly. So many people got really excited. And I think this is still true. So this was true in 2014 and it's 2022 and it's still true that so many producers get really excited about yeast and they get really like interested in this kind of like innovative side. And once I get to their facility they are so not ready to use yeast. Like there's so many things that we have to do before we can actually get like to, to the level of yeast. So yeah, it's sort of like, you know, wanting to run before we can walk. A lot of the times I have to like give a little bit of a reality check. Like we're not there yet. Yeah. All right. Um, Now, when, when I met you for the first time, like recently, six months ago, approximately, um yeah we traveled together to one of the producers that we work with and i remember that I, that i was really impressed by your way uh, to look to specialty coffee because um yeah 
I could say it's a different way of how most of the people in the industry are looking to the industry. And I mean, like, we have this tendency the recent years about going to micro lots, nano lots, very experimental um, ways of processing. And you were one of the first people uh, within specialty coffee first that were, I think, yeah, uh, bringing my attention to the fact that things need to be scientifically, more scientifically based to be able to have more consistency and things like that. But also you have a different look to all these very experimental things and uh, small lots and things. Can you reveal a little bit about that, your philosophy in coffee? Yeah, I think that's a really great way to put it. I think a lot of people maybe miscategorize me as as a scientist, um, which I do have a science background. I do have a degree. But what I really try to bring to coffee is a, is a philosophy. So I think I'm more of a philosopher than a scientist. And, you know, I think that I was helped a lot by having this outsider perspective, having worked in a different industry and coming to coffee with a little less romance, a little less of that, you know, passion in my eyes. I was very focused on the practicalities. And what I saw was a really strong tension between what the market wanted, what buyers wanted from coffee, from specialty coffee, and what producers were able to give them. So there was this huge gap between what consumers want and what producers could do. And that gap just felt to me like it was getting wider in terms of accessibility to information on the buying side, in terms of being able to access journal articles and going to conferences and really being on the cutting edge of science. And yet when it was brought to most of the producers, they really don't have either the ability to travel as much for these things or even just great internet connection or even the free time. You know, when you have a farm and you have all of these challenges, you don't have that much, you know, mental space to just sit and read journal articles about the latest coffee science. Um, So I saw this really big uh, imbalance between accessibility to these resources. And then I also saw that what I I felt like there's this idea that we know coffee prices have been poor historically. We know that very often coffee producers don't get the price of production. But then the leap that I see most people make is that, well, coffee hasn't been very good. And so if coffee could be differentiated, if it could be brought out of the dark ages of commodity and into specialty, then we could actually reward coffee producers for the work that they're doing. And then we can pay good prices and then we'll save the industry and everyone will make more money. And I think it's a very tempting idea, but I think it's very false because it's the same pattern. It's this idea that, okay, we haven't been paying producers enough because they just haven't been working hard enough. So if they just work a little bit harder, if they just do more hoops, if they just do a 100-hour fermentation, that's a double lactic, triple hydro honey something, then we'll pay them more. And I just felt like I don't think that's the way. And so what I work on with producers is... What I think consumers really want is a certain flavor profile. Maybe they're looking for some fruitiness or looking for this type of body. They're looking for, um, you know, something interesting. And so if understanding microbiology, understanding yeast metabolism and bacterial metabolism, if we can hit that profile, I can help them do it much more quickly. And so it's like, 
trying to, trying to think about coffee. If let's say, for example, you like naturals because you like something that's really fruity and you like it with a lot of body, but naturals are really difficult to do. They can take a month to dry. It takes a lot of labor to be constantly moving them. So what if we can get that same profile in a 30 hour washed fermentation? Now you've saved a producer 29 days of paying for labor and inaccuracies. But the problem is now we have to say washed on the label and people are like, oh, I don't want a washed. I want a natural. And so what I'm trying to get some education around is like, just like the flavor profile and don't worry about how a producer got there. Don't worry about what it took to get there. And unfortunately, so much of the way that we're communicating specialty coffee is the more complicated it sounds, the higher the value. But a lot of those it's just like acrobatics. It's just like a circus. And at the end of the day, they have very little minimal influence in the cup or they do influence the cup, but there's also a much easier way to get there. So, you know, that's a big part of my mission is kind of reverse engineering, like saying, what does somebody like about this coffee? Okay. How do we do that with 10 fewer steps? How do we do that in, you know, 50 days less? Yeah. Okay. So also to, to get, and maybe that's my next question. Besides the fact that often things are not really done based on scientific knowledge, often we see, and I think we are guilty as well, the coffee roasters, uh, we see one process being done in, let's say, Ethiopia, and then we kind of pick it, but like in very generic terms, and then we talk to another producer in Costa Rica or in Honduras, hey, you know, I saw this and they try to reproduce, but actually without really very fundamental knowledge about it. It's like just uh, maybe a YouTube movie that explains it a little bit. And so that is one issue. But the other thing that I see often also is a question that I often ask to producers is about their real costs of production, especially when we go to Uh, like uh, specific uh, processing, anaerobic processing, carbonic maceration kind of things. Um, and I rarely get an answer. And I always have the feeling that most of the producers, they don't really know it, what the real cost of production is of those small lots. How do you see this? Because you're working and living between producers? I think that's a really good point, and that's why I wanted to emphasize in the beginning of our conversation how wet it is in Colombia and, and the climate here. And so when we you know, have these really good intentions that buyers are visiting their customers, they're trying to bring, it's always well-intentioned. They're like, I saw this work here. I get to travel. I get to see what coffee's like in Uganda and Ethiopia, and I go to Brazil, and I go to Panama. And so they're this like, you know, a really great fountain of information. And so obviously the, the nature of people is to share and to say, well, I saw this work really well in Ethiopia. You should do it in Colombia. And the problem or the danger that we get into there is that they're completely different realities, not just like I'm talking about weather. So it makes a lot of these things very challenging, but also economically, like the structures are very different. And so what, what works in one country doesn't necessarily work in another. Like these things are really difficult to scale. And what I've been seeing is that as well-intentioned as this information is, a lot of the times it creates more problems without this context. So, so many producers, so much of my personal work, I would say 60 to 70% of the, the producers that reach out to me 
are because they had a bad experience with advice that they got from a well-intentioned person and they ruined coffee and they say, I, I don't know what happened. I, it tastes like this or this problem. So I come in to troubleshoot. So I also have a very unique perspective because I get to see all of the worst case scenarios, you know, so it's very dramatic for me to see all of these producers who are just unfortunately ruining their coffee, creating defects, creating problems, being more expensive when it's just not necessary because someone said, oh, I saw this in Uganda. You should do it in Guatemala. Um, but also your point is is also very good that this can be a lot more expensive and a lot of producers don't take that into account. You know, we're not, I think part of it is also cultural. There's not a lot of culture of thinking of coffee growing as a business. It's, it's a, a lot of it is family businesses. You know, it's, it's a family run thing. And so the mindset of cost of production or cost per unit is very foreign to a lot of these producers. And because a lot of the work is usually done intergenerationally, it's really hard to know how to account for one's time and how, and how to say like, okay, well, I know how much this tank cost me. I know how much this yeast cost me, maybe transportation, but then to say, okay, it took you a hundred more hours to do versus another simple process that's never factored in like what someone's time is worth. And so that's a big concern for me when I talk to producers to say, great, you did this 500 hour fermentation and it turned out great, but what's the opportunity cost? What else could you be doing with an extra 400 hours potentially putting it into your farm or spending time with your family or just, you know, anything else. So I really would like producers to not just think about the concrete parts of the cost of production, but also all of the intangible and all of the missed opportunities that you're doing this and not doing something else. So that's why I'm a really big proponent of efficiency. I think a lot of people don't realize that I'm I'm very much a minimalist in that sense. I'm like, if we can do it in 10 hours, let's do it. Um, maybe that's a little bit more of the American side as well. But really, it's about creating more space to do other stuff. Because even though fermentation is my favorite thing and my livelihood, and I just think it's so fun, it's not the most important thing that producers are facing. You know, the drying is really important. All of the climate pressures like you know there's more pressing things that producers could be spending their time on than super long complicated fermentations mm -hmm. yeah exactly what are the main problems or issues that you see when you are uh, visiting a, a new producer and you have to like you said solve a problem mostly it's when there has been a coffee already and there was a problem, but when the coffee was finished, so probably you come in for the next harvest to, to solve the problem for the future. What are the main things, like the main issues that you encounter? So one of the biggest problems that I see is that there's not enough just data tech tracking or note-taking. So when I ask, you know, there's a very strong oral tradition in a lot of these coffee growing cultures. And they, and I talk to people and they have incredible memories and they're so sharp. And like I say, like, what happened to that lot? And they will tell me, they say, oh, it came in on Tuesday. And then we had it on the raised bed for 14 days. And then it was really sunny that day. And they can tell me like a really good amount of history. Um, but then I'll find out nothing is written down. There's no entry date of where the coffee was or weight or anything. And so it's really hard to improve on a process or re to replicate it when there's no baseline. So for me, that's one of the biggest mistakes, not that it causes problems, but that it doesn't let you kind of learn and have feedback and improve if every time you're just kind of doing it for the first time. 
And I think the second problem is more of a coffee, very coffee specific problem, which is because coffee is roasted, because we know that we have this like kill step in terms of sanitation, we're not really worried about anything pathogenic in our coffee hurting us. So I think that on the on the side pre-roasting, we're very relaxed about hygiene. We're very relaxed about cleaning protocols because everyone's like, oh, coffee's going to be roasted. It's fine. Um, but you still have this opportunity to create a lot of defects and off flavors and inconsistencies. And so the thing that makes coffee safe for us to drink is kind of the barrier to making it improve because people don't consider cleanliness as a factor, the way that you walk into a winery or a brewery or a dairy. Dairies are some of the cleanest places where people are so intense about washing your feet and what in your hair and just your clothes and not having that contamination. In coffee, it could really benefit from improved hygiene. It's just really difficult to make it, you know, make it make sense because everyone's like, oh, we just roasted. It's fine. So I'm just here to say we should be a lot more careful with our our cleanliness of these facilities, not to go too overboard, because now I do see a lot of producers um, mimicking these other industries and uh, sterilizing their ch- coffee cherries the way that we sterilize wine grapes. And in wine, it makes sense. But in coffee, I think that's really, again, like overkill, like we're sort of overcorrecting. And that can be a very expensive step to sanitize your cherries. And it may not even be necessary. So that's another thing where I, I really try to be outspoken to coffee producers to say, you know, you are, you have limited resources. So let's put those in the best place. And maybe buying an ozone machine to sanitize your coffee cherries is not the best investment. Yeah. Yeah. And how about drying? Like the, the drying part of coffee. Uh, I remember when we were together in Honduras, that was one of the, one, one of the problems. Is that something very common that, um, that brings problems, the drying uh, phase of the coffee? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up drying because drying is, it's not sexy, like fermentation and microbiology and, you know, probiotics and all of these trends in food. Drying is very boring. But it's so important because if you think about a typical coffee fermentation, maybe it's 24, 48 hours, you could dry your coffee for three weeks. You could dry your coffee for 21 days, 30 days. So what you do in drying can have such a bigger impact on quality than what you're doing for those 24 hours of fermenting. And on top of that, all of the flavors that we're making in the fermentation, all of these, you know, Um, when I say flavors, I, I'm talking about really fruity components, something like jasmine or florals or having like apricots or pineapples. Like we can create those flavor precursors with a fermentation. But then if you have bad drying, meaning that it's too hot or too quick, then you're volatilizing out all of those flavors from your fermentation and you're losing them in drying. And then you cup your coffee and you're like, mm, it was okay. Or We don't really see anything. And it wasn't because a fermentation didn't work. It was because the drying was not matched to that fermentation. So, you know, I think another mistake is that people think we have to do long, slow drying and take a really long time to dry your coffee. And I don't necessarily believe that. Again, I'm, I'm trying to find that point where it's slow enough to be gentle, but not so slow that you're just wasting time, like slow to just be slow. So I think you can dry within you know, eight or nine days and still have a really good gentle process. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, how do you how do you see mechanical drying? Because often it's something that in specialty, as soon as someone says that it's mechanically dried, it's like your red flags. We don't like it. But couldn't it be sometimes a solution in certain microclimates or certain humid climates? Uh, yeah, I, I think that this is one of the places where I think as consumers and coffee buyers, we can be really hypocritical because we love our machines. Like you get so nerded out about your roasters and even our brewers and like we love the technology side of it. So we're always like, you know, trying to get more into the gear. And then if a producer does it, all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 that's not good. That's fake. That's not artisanal anymore. It's not charming. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we really need to be a little bit more self-reflective and critical and, and just notice that, you know, it's not fair to say we can have all the toys, but coffee producers can't have any of the toys as kind of one thing. Um, but yes, I think machines are fantastic. I, I love machine drying, especially if somebody says, they're concerned about consistency and stability and reproducibility of the coffee lots. Machines are great. Traditionally, the issue has been that machines have been used in a very specific way. So it's sort of like, you know, don't, don't hate the machine. It's like, how, who's using it? <laughs> who is the user who is operating the machine and how are you using it? And we can use machines to mimic nature. What's fantastic about sun drying and why it can yield higher quality is that you have this natural day, night, day, night, hot, break, hot, break cycle. And that's really important for good coffee drying because otherwise you're like trapping all of this moisture on the inside of the coffee and you don't, you don't have, you, your coffee will change over time because that water is going to come out, but it may come out three months later in storage instead of during your drying. So if we can use our machines to mimic nature, run them for a while, like turn them off, turn them on again, turn them off. If you can mimic that cycle, the machine could be much better for drying than the sun because it's consistent and reliable. And like you said, in places where it's very humid and where it's very rainy, it may be your only choice. And so a machine is something that allows a producer to access a specialty coffee. So I think it's also like, I think a lot of people don't realize what they're asking when they're saying those things. You're, you're specifically saying, okay, if you live in this climate, I am discriminating against you and you are not allowed to produce specialty coffee because you have to produce it with a machine and that's not specialty to me. And so you're really disenfranchising a lot of people if you have these views that specialty coffee has to be all handpicked and hand dried and fermented in a certain way. Um, I yeah. just think it's, it's really... Um, yeah, like very hypocritical to say, yeah. this is yeah. right and this doesn't count. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it changes as soon as you have been visiting some producing countries and you see how the reality is, because of course we can see a lot of movies or read a lot of books on how it should be and how the theory works. But of course today it's, the reality is very different and, and climate change has, uh, yeah, its difficulties. So uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. But no. I think it's hard. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think this is a really good point that what you're saying is like, until we got a lot of this travel, until a lot of people went to see it for themselves and realized, wow, I'm, my eyes are open to the realities of this country. It's difficult to transport. It's been raining for 45 days that I've been here. You know, you, you really don't get to understand it. And yes, I think that's really important. 
But I wish that that wasn't the only way. I wish that when producers could share, like people would just believe them and you didn't have to like get on a plane and fly there and be like, prove it to me. And until I see it, I won't believe it. You know, I feel like there should be a little bit more um, grace and trust extended when someone says like, that process doesn't work here. That doesn't work for me. You know, that, that they're, that first of all, producers aren't even sharing that much because they don't have the confidence to share their troubles because they just want to present a happy picture because they want to have positive relations. Um, so maybe creating a safer space where producers can share their difficulties and that when they do share that, we believe them and then we don't need to triple our carbon footprint by flying on a plane and saying, but I need to see it. Somebody prove it to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see what you mean. I think yeah. coffee travel is, is something that we really don't look at too much. Like we just take for granted that this is the way that we must fly there. And I think it can be really important, but I think sometimes we're just over glamorizing it and that not every single coffee trip is as necessary. You know, I've seen a lot of instances with producers that I work with where they will get a visitor and they're buying five bags. And they flew three of their team members to go five, five bags. And I'm like, maybe you could have saved those $6,000 on airfare and just paid a little bit more for the coffee and not had to go visit. You know, like, I just feel like a lot of these trade-offs, we, we just take them for granted that, oh, I'm a, I'm a coffee buyer. I must go visit. And to think mm-hmm. about, is there a point where this money would be better spent doing something else? Yeah. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we already discussed some challenges and I think coffee always has been a challenging industry and I think more today more than ever. I mean, uh, prices, climate change, I mean, every year there is another reason why producers are worrying. Um, I mean, it's not the most easy business to send your children into when you're a producer. How do you, and I think this is the one million dollar question, how do you see the future of specialty coffee? And how do you see, I think like now we can, yeah, we have more or less like 20 years of specialty coffee history, um, where in the beginning it was all very passionate people like us doing, trying to do their best, but sometimes lacking knowledge and 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 uh, experience and i think now we can see that for the future maybe this industry becomes more mature and how do you see the future of this industry i'm very worried and i think that part of what makes me more sensitive to it like i said i i have a filter where i get the worst case scenarios so i know that i'm like a very sensitive Um, person to this and I live in a very affected area so like my reality day to day living with coffee producers I I feel it a little bit more Um, but I also I don't feel like people are worried enough about coffee I think that we can really say okay climate change is a problem okay coffee prices are terrible and we can look at the earth and see okay we have a, a 2050 um target for when we're going to be like losing all of this agricultural land and we have this like kind of far away target i think we have a problem sooner like you were saying about the next generation the average age of coffee producers is 65 and above i don't see a lot of the next people growing so i don't even if climate change is magically solved um even if we can figure out sort of the economies and the transportation of coffee, I don't see the next generation interested in growing coffee and even their parents pushing them out of growing coffee. So 
for me, sustainability doesn't often talk about the sustainability of the people, of the workforce, of who's going to actually be growing this coffee. I don't think we're talking about that enough. And I'm just seeing there's not a lot of people that are interested. And that is a much sooner problem. That is a five-year problem, you know? And so, and not just the next generation of coffee farmers, but just the pickers. Every single country that you talk to, everyone says there is a labor shortage. No one is here to pick the coffees. And then in specialty coffee, they're also hearing all of this pressure about, we don't want machine harvested. We want people to do it. And there's just this huge disconnect. So, you know, I... I feel a little bit kind of like a broken record kind of saying a lot of this stuff, but I am really worried. And I think I'm worried that not everybody is as worried about coffee because we can say we love it, but I don't see a lot of effort to make sure the thing that you love keeps existing. I see a lot of emphasis on the fun parts of coffee, but very few people willing to look at these kind of difficult, um, these difficult aspects of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, but yeah, very, very interesting. And indeed, yeah, I I think, but what we see, but of course, that's like a very small view that we have is that um, you have these like children of producers who were uh, studying in Bogota, for instance, and then seeing that there might be a future because they see, okay, if we do it in another way, because their parents, maybe they were not yeah like enough informed about the possibilities in in coffee and that they are going back home and trying to do it differently but again it's it's like very young um, examples and young companies so we don't see yet the result of that it's like very young passionate people in their 20s trying to do something different uh, but we don't we don't see yet the result of it and how these companies will be profitable in time Right. It hasn't been proven. So there is a lot of, there is a spark of hope. I still say that that's a really small percentage of people that have been able to send their kids away, become educated as other things, and then come back into coffee. Um, But the gap that I still see is that there are a lot of educated people in coffee, but there's very few people in coffee educated about coffee. There's a lot of people that have their degrees in something else and are trying to apply it to coffee, but coffee, coffee science, you know, coffee professionals in that way are very few and far between. So I think even though we're getting a lot more educated minds into coffee, there's still very little coffee education. And so mm-hmm. that, that for me spreads that gap out a little bit more. Um, and I think the reality of most coffee producers in the world is that they don't have these uh, this, these opportunities for this higher level education that they can, you know, bring back into the farm. Like we're talking about the 1% of the 1% of coffee producers. And I'm just like, I don't know if that's going to be enough. So, yeah, I think that the point that I want to bring across is that there are a lot of educated people in coffee, but very few educated people about coffee <laughs> in coffee. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gap, I mean, I see that filling. I see a lot more courses being done on coffee, a lot more coffee education kind of coming up. Um, But what I'm very concerned about is that gap, that lag behind the information coming out, the people learning it. And then what you mentioned was the implementation and seeing, is it actually a viable model? Because what I'm seeing right now is a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, and I just haven't seen the results yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have something 
like the role of us being the coffee roasters somewhere uh, the other side of the world what do you think that our future role should be or what can we do as as a roaster to i mean yeah as a small specialty coffee roaster i think that the the desire comes out of being advocates for coffee so i see so many roasters and buyers that that do passionately love coffee and that see that coffee can be an agent for change and it it attracts so many different people and i think that that original desire to be an advocate and to be helpful and to try to uh, you know bring more awareness to single origin and to process and to particular producer stories I feel like that was such a great idea, but it's getting so commercialized and corrupted. And I, I feel like we've really lost the original thread of what that was supposed to be. And I see it turned into a little bit more of a romantic, glamorous job of a green buyer that gets to jet set and you know do all of this stuff. And so I feel like it's really important at this time for the industry to be a little bit more self-critical and say, am I actually helping? I know I want to, I know I meant to, but trying to get that feedback of, I think I'm helping, but like asking the people, like, are their lives really different? Are they actually getting paid more? Are they being fairly compensated? Or do I just want to make myself believe that because it feels nice and I'm putting their picture on the bag and stuff like that. So, you know, and I think that's going to depend on everybody. I think there's so many people that are doing really good, important outreach and really good work. And there's also people that only look like it and aren't really accomplishing anything. So like those two people really can look the same. Someone who's like doing awesome work and helping and someone who's just trying to have a really nice Instagram. And it's really hard to know which one's doing anything. So mostly that I just, you know, would would ask and just regular consumers, you know, even just somebody sitting at home who buys coffee to say, you know, what am I paying for? What am I supporting when I'm buying this type of coffee? And There's a lot of really great options out there too. It takes a little bit more effort to try and kind of weed out the marketing from something that's genuine, but I think it's there. I think you can yeah. find it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I think as a as a consumer, it's not so easy, and you really have to take the time to dig into it and to ask questions to figure out who is, yeah, like doing or trying to do the things correct and where it is more marketing speech and talk. Um, but uh, yeah okay thank you <laughs> um, yeah I think you kind of answered the questions I prepared mm, maybe to finish I would like to ask you if you if you still have something that you want to share with the listeners of this podcast besides what we, we've been talking about already Yeah, I'm, it's a theme that keeps coming back to me is this idea of hypocrisy and this idea of um, I'm going to pick on my mom a little bit because my mom, my mom loves coffee. My mom is somebody who she like <laughs> one Mother's Day, what she wanted was to get this latte from Blue Bottle in in the ferry building in San Francisco. And it was Mother's Day and it was a ferry building and it was such a long line. And she was like, adamant that we stand in line for like 45 minutes to get this to get her latte and she was really happy and we all got a coffee and it was fine but like even I don't have that type of patience and coffee love to like stand in line for a really long time um 
And so I see a lot of people that are like passionate about the beverage and all of the things that it can do. But I tease her because I'm like, mom, a latte is like 80% milk. I'm like, you love milk. I don't know how much you love coffee. (laughs) You love milk. And I can't get her to drink coffee, just regular filter coffee. Um, So I want to have people who love coffee, maybe be a little bit more reflective about what it is they love about coffee and, and to maybe have you know, I've talked about this before too, kind of expanding our vocabulary and having a a few more words or a few more things to talk about so that coffee lover is this really broad sense and it can encompass a lot of things. And then it gets kind of muddied because I see these coffee lovers and I'm like, but you're not really, you know, they may not even know that coffee comes from a cherry or maybe I've never even tasted a cherry or really understand all of these um, difficulties that come with this crop. And so I think it's really hard to say, I'm a coffee lover and I don't know anything about coffee. Like, you know, to say, like, if you're going to say you love something, do a little bit of investigation. Make sure that what you're doing is not causing more harm. I'm not saying you have to buy, like, the most ethical coffee possible, but maybe just one that's a little more ethical. Like, just moving, you know, like, baby steps. Like, just a little bit towards um, a different direction. So I guess what I'm asking for is a little bit more self-reflection, a little bit more criticism of ourselves, of our industry, just to say, like, what role am I playing? I think a lot of the times you want to point the finger and say, it's them out there. And it's like, well, what are we doing? How am I contributing to the problem? How am I contributing to ignorance or contributing to, you know, kind of giving cover? I think better pointing the finger inward. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting message and not only for coffee. I think on different areas in our lives, we can maybe question ourselves a little bit more instead of having a lot of opinions about everything else outside. Yeah, <laughs> my biggest crit- criticism of myself um, that I've been working on is air travel. You know, like I'm, try- I'm somebody who tries to have a small carbon footprint. I didn't own a car. We try to grow most of our own food, like in terms of the beauty products and the clothing. I try to make try to make my, I made the sweater. Um, I try to make things when I can, but I fly a lot and flying is so, such a huge impact on the planet. And to like to square away how I need to make a living and the flying that I do and then figuring out. So, you know, I'm trying to have less flying, less clients and to do a a workshop that I'm doing here in Colombia and bringing people here, but they still have to travel too. So, you know, there's this problem. I'm not saying there's a perfect solution, but I'm thinking about it and I'm, I'm trying and I'm working on it. And I think that's like the most that we can ask to people is just Mm, say like, let's examine it. Okay. Maybe one last question. How do you see your own future in coffee or maybe in another industry in time or what are your own goals in time in coffee? This is a really, really good question right now. Um, but my role, I have, a, I, the, all, the other tension I have in myself is that I, the way that I work with my clients is I try to make myself irrelevant. I feel very allergic to this idea of being like the source or like a bottleneck for information. So with my producers, I try to teach them a system and I want them to like graduate 
out of needing me <laughs> as soon as possible. Um, you know, I really think of myself not necessarily as the expert, but I'm somebody who's a little further along the path. And I hope that a lot of my clients learn from me and then learn more and sort of move on. Like I really like to be at this beginning stage of producers who are maybe only ever produce commodity and want to get into specialty. Like I just want to open that door, open that possibility for them and then have them kind of grow beyond. So my challenge as a, uh, as an independent business person is that I'm always trying to make myself irrelevant and, and, and so growing, I like, I don't know what growth looks like <laughs> So yeah. right yeah. now, what my business model has moved to, cause it changed a lot with the pandemic. You know, I was traveling way more with the pandemic. I obviously had to stop and I realized how much I enjoyed not traveling. Um, and so just being based in one country, one coffee producing country and working in a mill and, then the idea turned to workshops and kind of bringing people together in one place instead of constantly going to all of these different locations. Um, so I think that's the future is to travel way less yeah. and to have a, a teaching facility, a pilot mill where mm -hmm. I can invite producers to come and learn basic principles. I think that's another misconception about my work is people think that because I'm this yeast person, because I know all of this microbiology that I'm really pushing for these innovative, intense processes. And a lot of time it's the opposite. I'm saying, you really don't need to do that. Let's make it really simple and trying to make, um, the best tasting coffee with the fewest amount of steps. I don't know why we're rewarding all of this inefficiencies. Like, I don't know why we're like, the more complicated it is, the better it is. Um, yeah. It yeah. feels like, you know, very, very wasteful. So that's part of like my minimalism practice. So the future for me looks like a, a teaching facility with a pilot mill mm -hmm. where I can bring different producers together. We've, so we've done one workshop in Colombia. The next one is yeah, in I September. On the, yeah. <laughs> so that was, was really fun. People. Yeah. We had uh, 15 people come. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah. from different parts of the industry and come in it, it, you know, I really wanted it to be like a summer camp where we learn together, process coffee, get to ask all your microbiology questions and, and learn from each other. Cause like I said, this, me being the bottleneck makes me feel really uncomfortable. And there's so much knowledge that is just buried with, within other people. And something that I'm a little bit disappointed by is how guarded a lot of the coffee industry is from the producing side. It's, it's really difficult to share. And I, I, yeah, I just think there hasn't been like a safe space to do that. It's, there's a lot of competition. The margins are razor thin. Yeah. So like, of course it, it makes sense. Um, but I think there's another way to work. There's another way that we can um, envision coffee. And so yeah. that's what I like. Yeah. So maybe the next training camp or workshop will be in Guatemala. And I'm talking to some people to try to do one in India in 2023 um and hopefully indonesia so i'll do like one a year <laughs> so like maybe indonesia yeah. 2024 india 2023 and then have my home base and then just really really limit my traveling and try to do more yeah. videos try to do more you know virtual stuff of training yeah. courses yeah yeah all right thank you lucia maybe we still have to mention because i don't think we did it already about your very 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 interesting podcast you have yourself <laughs> That's, I think, how I uh, discovered you uh, by, by accident. I came across your podcast and I started to listen to them from the first to the last one. 
So I think I can recommend it to everybody who is listening to or who is interested or searching for information in coffee. Um, yeah, they should definitely uh, listen to your podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's called Making Coffee with Lucia Solis. And I made it to, I just had all of these ideas and I found myself repeating constantly. And I was like, oh, this is kind of silly. So I'm just going to put it in one place and have an audio library. And the original goal was to just have it be like the 10 episodes of the kind of frequently asked questions, like the things that producers have the most um uh, challenges with understanding sugar usage. Um, I have a series about terroir. And then it kind of turned into this thing that people really enjoyed because um, I talk a lot about my winemaking past and I make a lot of comparisons about my wine past and how we can apply it to coffee and what we should apply and what we shouldn't apply. And so it kind of grew into its own thing. And now it's, uh, yeah, it's a really fun little project. So I really like it that it has brought me some nice like-minded people like you and we got to meet in person, which is so cool. And yeah. Katrina, I wanted to ask you from kind of that experience, what was, what stood out to you the most, like having actually spent time together with, in Honduras, with a producer? When we were there together? When you were there together. Yeah. Like, like, was there something I, kind of unexpected? Like you were expecting something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of expected, yeah, I had listened to your podcast, uh, the whole series before, so I already knew a little bit how you were uh, looking to coffee, which was different from what I had heard before. So that that thing was not, I mean, I was not surprised anymore. But I think the thing that surprised me the most, and I'm not sure that you realized it, was when the last day we went to, into the drying. Do you remember when on the patio we had like raised beds and we started to check into the drying, how they were drying the coffee. And I remember that it was the morning, so 9.30 something, I, I took pictures of it. And you started by asking, okay, can you check on what the temperature of the beans is right now? And I remember the, the temperature then at 9.30 in the morning was like 38 or 39 degrees. So, okay, we know that's by noon that would rise still a few more degrees exactly and those were things very simple things that i had never looked into before so and then we checked on uh, how they depulped the the beans and we saw that not all beans were really well depulped and so uh, you you started talking about okay the fermentation that was actually that you think you did the fermentation controlled during i don't know 24 hours and then you stop but it was not the case because it it continued. And that was something that I had never realized before. So for me, I think that was the, the biggest thing that I, yeah, surprise. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good point too, that kind of coming back to what we said in the beginning, where it's like people want to, they want to run before they've learned to walk. And so they're like, what strain of bacteria should I be using? And what, you know, what tank should I be using? Or buying, you know, these glycol, jacketed tanks or ozone machines to sanitize or clean. And then I ask them and they don't even have a thermometer. You know, they don't even have a pH meter, like something that costs, you know, $5 that would give them a lot of information. So that temperature information is really important in terms of long-term quality, knowing if we're getting too hot and damaging the germ, and then we're going to have uh, consistency issues or storageability issues long-term for, for the coffee. And 
Exactly. So many people think that the fermentation is only what happens in the tank. And then once I take it out, now it's drying. And it's like, no, when we understand microbiology, if you have moisture and you have heat, you have a reaction. And this thing is happening, like just because you think the fermentation's over because you took it out of the tank, it is still going for many, many days. And so I think a lot of producers get really frustrated because they think I'm doing the same thing. I'm following the recipe and I get a different result. And it's because yep. they don't understand all of these parts where it's actually not the same thing. It's it's yep. a pretty different situation. So that's cool that you picked up on that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think another thing that was interesting too uh, was uh, about, and I think we all do the same when there is a kind of a new process you think about, we have the idea, okay, we'll do it in a small batch in one small tank. And if this gives a, a good result, then we will... Uh, like expand Make it, it. Bigger. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think if you're honest most of us when you have this bigger volume then you have like mm, yeah it's good but it's really not exactly what we had it last year in this small volume and it's only by being there with you and by like um, yeah going much deeper into all these different phases that i realized that of course it's maybe not possible to uh, just have like a small batch and then just doing the same thing, like the same hours and expecting that in a big volume, it would give the the same result. So yeah, that was another thing that was very interesting. And that's a little bit easier for roasters to understand when I remind them that when you're sample roasting 50 or 100 grams, the way that you sample roast 100 grams is different than when you're doing a 50 kilo batch Mm -hmm. because your heat energy, your momentum, all of these parameters are so different when your batch size is significantly bigger. And yet when it comes to the fermentation, most people just think, oh, I'll just do the same thing. 24 hours in a bucket works. So I'm going to do 24 hours with five tons and it does yeah. not work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, thanks a lot. Oh, I can, my pleasure. I, I could, I could talk for hours with you about a lot of things. I actually, I, I, I would still have a lot of other questions, um, but uh, yeah, I think we have to finish here somewhere. Maybe I still have one. Uh, yeah. Do you have like um, a philosophy, or how do you look into organic coffee? Um. I'm not talking about certified, yeah. just doing it the organic way. So the, the, my philosophy on organic coffee is half-baked. It is still forming, um, and it's mostly informed by what I'm seeing. And so I think organic as a model is fantastic, this idea of not having any chemical inputs. However, the reality on most coffee farms is like organic by default, like doing nothing. Like maybe it's a misconception. Maybe it's a misunderstanding that they think organic means doing nothing. And the issue with that is that we're creating this crop. We're continually like coffee is very extractive. (laughs) So we're taking, we're taking, we're taking, we're producing this cherry. And when nothing is ever going back in, we're obviously going to decline in quality. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I have a problem with organic. It's that it's maybe has a branding problem. It has an information problem. And so it's not creating the higher quality that we're expecting to have. And Mm -hmm. I also think that maybe it's going back to this hypocrisy of, you know, coffee in most of the world grows where 
it didn't want to grow. It shouldn't grow. It's not native to there. It was brought over. So it's a foreign plant. Um, there's not a lot of indigenous historical knowledge of how to grow it because it was this very, you know, colonial structure of here, just grow this and we'll give you this recipe and then we'll take it and put it somewhere else. So it's already like a very demanding crop. It's a very demanding plant in a very difficult environment. And then you want to slap on top of that. Okay. But don't use any chemicals. Don't use what's conventionally easily available, you know, do all of these other recipes. And so I think that it's, it's such a burden for producers to, pile all of these things on top of each other. So I think it may not be fair to say, you know, the plant artificially got there, we're artificially processing it, and now I want everything else to be natural. So mm-hmm. it's just more of like this this gauge of, we can say that, but just deciding, you know, just admitting that this is an arbitrary line and I am deciding that it's arbitrary at this point. And just mm-hmm. being a little bit more open to that. I think there's a problem when we're like, this is more noble. This is more morally correct. Um, I don't agree with that. I think that yeah. a lot of this stuff is arbitrary and it's not that it's bad. I would love to see more regenerative agriculture, more permaculture, more intercropping, um, more shade kind of getting more to this forest area. But it's a it's a very high demand when we remember coffee doesn't want to grow there. So asking it to not grow there and not giving it any help, sorry, asking it to grow there and not trying to help it with every tool that you have is again, another challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of challenges we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I could, t- I, I love this too. I could talk to you for a long time. We can maybe do a, a part two if your audience likes it. Yeah. Maybe you have to ask the people if they have questions yeah. that were not answered in this uh, episode. And maybe you can ask them that they send their questions and we can have another one. Yeah. yeah. I would love to do that. We do a listener question part two episode. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah, uh, Lucia, thanks a lot really for your time because I know you're very busy. I can <laughs> I can follow you on your Instagram. If you're not busy in coffee, you're busy with your cats and dogs. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm very busy living a retired life of my garden and knitting. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks a lot. No, my pleasure. It's, it was really great to see you and great to chat. And I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And if you guys are cool enough to speak Dutch, you can check out the rest of Katrine's episodes on the Pure Coffee podcast. Most of the episodes are in Dutch, but you can find some in English like mine and an interview with Katia Lopez, who works for Cup of Excellence. And there's also an episode in French as well, <laughs> which I'm very envious of all this uh, ease of language. I think it's very cool. Links to purchase coffee or listen to the podcast are in the show notes. If you like this type of conversational episode, let me know and I can include more in the future. Hop over to patreon.com slash making coffee to support the show and let me know your thoughts on future episodes. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. Patrons now also have access to the Discord live discussions. That's like kind of the podcast after the podcast that we make together. And if you join, you don't just get to talk to me, you get to talk to other awesome members. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. 